Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Michael Kruger, President of Reformed Seminary Charlotte and author of Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College. Dr. Kruger wrote this book for his daughter, who is now a student at UNC Chapel Hill, sharing what he wished he understood as a young believer and a student there 30 years ago as his faith was challenged by his religion professor. Now, as an accomplished scholar, he is able to offer much wisdom to his daughter Emma and so many like her who face challenges to their faith each day on campus. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stan. Great to be with you. Well, just a few months ago now, you had a new book published. Its title is Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College. Uh, I read it as soon as it came out and thoroughly enjoyed it. In the in the introduction, you observe, the question is whether modern universities are actually exhibiting the intellectual freedom they claim to value. Are they genuinely interested in presenting both sides of the argument? And then you share how you began to ask this question during your undergraduate years at UNC Chapel Hill. Will you summarize your experience for us? Yeah, uh, this book is really near and dear to my heart because it's been on my mind for a long time. I've intended to write it for years and just in all my other uh, academic pursuits, never got around to it. Actually, it's my first lay-level book I've ever written, so Mm. it's unique in that respect, too. But it began years ago, as I say in the introduction, when I was an undergraduate at UNC, and I found myself as a believer on a secular campus in a religion class with a very dynamic professor who was very gifted and capable and sharp and was doing his best to dismantle everything I believed about the reliability of the Bible. And uh, as people probably already know or will read about, that professor's name was Bart Ehrman, um, who's well known now as a pretty uh, vocal critic of Christianity. And so there I was, right, not prepared at all for what I was facing in the college classroom. Uh, and I realized at the time that, that you know, why wasn't I ready? You know, what, you know, I grew up in a Christian home and was in a good church and and never heard these things before. And I was just completely taken back by what this tsunami of attacks was. So thankfully, by God's grace, I made it out of that um, and ended up sort of in an ironic turn, perhaps being a biblical scholar myself. But <laughs> things aren't improved in the situation today. And as you noted, you know, I make this point in the book, and the secular campus is not a place where people are typically getting both sides of any argument about anything, but have unfortunately sort of ceased to be the universities they were intended to be. I mean, I don't mind a secular university as long as they're very legitimately trying to present all sides fairly, which right. I think just sadly isn't happening. Right. Well, I'm interested in whether uh, you, after you've uh, done now your studies, earned your PhD and work in the field of New Testament scholarship, have you had the opportunity to talk with Bart Ehrman again? No, we don't really interact personally. Um, I, I, we, we, we know each other professionally, but mm-hmm. I don't, we, we don't really interact personally. But I've, uh, I've reviewed a good number of his books over the years. Sure. Um, and, you know, we certainly inter- interact in print, you might say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, it's, it's mostly on a professional level. You write the book to your daughter, Emma, who began her undergraduate studies at UNC as well, the fall of 2019. Uh, interestingly, my oldest son began his undergraduate studies at the University of Kansas that same fall, fall of 2019. So uh, we're living parallel realities in some ways. And uh, you actually quote a verse at the end of chapter two in your letter to Emma that uh, was the same verse I sent my son off with, Joshua 1.9. Uh, 
Uh, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. The Lord, your God will be with you wherever you go. And uh, now as he's at a, a public university, as is Emma, I'm excited for him to read your book. Uh, but what about listeners who are at Christian colleges and universities? How might this book help them? Yeah. So one of the things I think, you know, I, I'm trying to do in the book is certainly reach college students. And I think that's obvious because as you noted, I'm writing it too in, in the form of letters to my daughter. So for those who are listening, who haven't read the book, it, each chapter is a different topic I know she'll face. And so I wrote it sort of structurally like letters to her, although of course any college student can read it and, and it's, it, it's not overly personal. Right. Um, but the other half of why I wrote the book was for parents um, who are sending their children and are thinking, you know, did we send them to the right place? And mm. how do I track with this? And, and, and one of the things that I see happening out there is that parents often will send their kids to Christian colleges and feel like, okay, now I don't have to worry about it. Mm. And I think, uh, I, don't, I don't mention this particularly in the book, but I think, you know, my, my word to those parents would be, well, you know, keep in mind that, you know, just because they're headed to what might seem to be a good Christian college, it's not so simple these days anymore. Um, and that even at, at colleges that are Christian with a great reputation, there's things that are said in the classroom and taught by the faculty that I think we all recognize would be out of the mainstream of historic Christianity. And so, you know, my advice is, you know, you, you, no matter where you are, you never let your guard down. You mm -hmm. always are aware of what you're listening to and you're filtering it through a biblical lens, whether you're at a secular university or a Christian university. And for that matter, even at church, sure. it's not like when you go to church, suddenly you're like, well, I, I don't need to really, you know, filter anything anymore. No, you're always discerning in what you're doing. So even a Christian college, uh, as beneficial as those can be, are not exempt from this. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we're seeing that all around the country in various circumstances. I'm sure we could get into if we wanted to. Mm -hmm. Good point. Good point. But certainly the secular universities have a bit more of a, a bias. And, uh, and that's why you address this book to Emma, who is at a public university. And, and you say, especially this is true in religion departments, where the ratio of those who would have a more liberal persuasion to a more conservative persuasion is 70 to 1. Why is that? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an oddity, isn't it? Uh -huh. and, and I don't think it applies to all religious traditions, ironically. Hmm. And so if you, if you find a professor at a major university that teaches Islam or teaches you know, Eastern religions or maybe Buddhism or Hinduism or even Judaism, who's Jewish, mm -hmm. it's not unusual to find someone who's actually devoted to that very religion teaching in those departments. We have plenty of people, of course, who are teaching in those departments that aren't. Um, and, and have no particular sympathy to any of those particular traditions. But you, you'd find a decent number of folks who would consider themselves committed to the traditional views of those religious traditions. Sure. However, in the Christian system, for whatever set of reasons, and I think we could speculate on what those reasons would be, that's not the case. In fact, it seems to be there's a concerted effort to make sure that anyone teaching Christianity or the history of Christianity or the Bible is not, not just not a Christian, but perhaps even very intent on dismantling everything that's historically Christian. And so there seems to be an odd aversion to the historical Christian views there that I find puzzling and unfortunate for a university environment. I think it's coming so close to the edge of reasonable now that I think universities are going to have to actually assign devoted slots to religious traditions to counteract the bias because the bias is so overwhelming that you can't even get an evangelical professor in a religion department. And so if you're going to do that, you almost have to have a, a mandated slot that's filled that you say, okay, we're going to have our, 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 you know, traditional person in here amongst everybody else, just to make it seem at least you're trying 
to have intellectual diversity. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd, I'd appreciate just an effort. You don't even have to be very good at the effort. The, the, the ironic <laughs> thing is that I'm, I'm not actually that hard to please here. I mean, even if you just made an effort, um, and even, even if you just pretended to be uh, somewhat uh, even-handed with the different traditions, I would be happy. But, you know, there's not even really that anymore. Um, and, you know, it's hard to get jobs in these secular schools if you have traditional beliefs. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there's a real crisis in, in, the, in the educational world. And, of course, to, to be fair, that was the intent of my book is not to directly address that crisis, but merely to help the student navigate the situation they're in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and like I said, you did an excellent job of that. You also, I think, give the positive of this Reality In chapter one, you write the opposition you endure at UNC can, as strange as it sounds, be a tremendous benefit. It can shape you into a better, fitter believer. Uh, You're clearly an example of this. Can you think of others who are examples and how that process tends to go? Yeah, well, this is this is one of the, the, the things I try to lay out in the first chapter. I think is very important is I don't want to send Christian college students off to secular universities with a martyr complex Mm. where every professors, Darth Vader, every student groups in Inquisition looking to string them up mm. and they're defensive and, and scared and everything's, you know, very pessimistic. So there's this dark cloud over the whole thing. No, I don't, I don't think that's the case at all. I think you can have a lot of optimism and, and encouragement by the, the, the situation you're in, not because there's not real opposition, but because God uses that opposition to, to strengthen uh, the believers. And you ask for examples of this. And, and I suppose one might say I'm an example of that, but but historically, the, the entire Christian church is an example of that. And here's what I mean. I mentioned this in one of the chapters that in the early church, and I say early church, I mean, even in the second century after the apostles had, had passed on, the church found itself very much a minority, very much intellectually mocked and ridiculed, very much out of place in the Greco-Roman world. And curiously, it was that out of placeness that forced them to, to give better answers to questions, mm. that forced them to answer the objections of their Greco-Roman counterparts, and it forced them to think more deeply about their faith and why they believed. It never would have done any of that if it hadn't been for opposition. And so my point sure. to college students is when you go through this university experience, and if you, if you make it, if you survive, if you keep your faith intact, you'll find that you're stronger, richer, deeper than you otherwise would have had to go. And it's like an athlete, right? You, you push yourself. It hurts. Sometimes it hurts really bad, but you're going to be a lot more fit uh, when it's done. And so I, I want to make sure that positive dimension of the book is there, which is why I started with it in chapter one. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great perspective. It came through very well in chapter one. I appreciate the way you summarized that. In chapter two, you go on and, and name what I think most students find very hard to believe in their parents. Uh, quote, people, including your professors, are not neutral. They have a worldview, a paradigm that shapes everything else. Worldviews involve our most foundational commitments. Although everyone has a worldview, most people have not really thought much about their own. It's just there in the background, conditioning and controlling their search for knowledge. Now, this raises the question, uh, is, is that not true of, of us as well? And how do we as believers know we're not interpreting the data to fit our predetermined conclusions when we're engaging some contrary data or arguments in our classes? Yeah, absolutely. It applies to us as well. And this is actually one of the points I make in the book is you'll notice that never in the book do I ever say that the solution to this is that, that Christians ought to strive to be neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, ne- never is do I think the Bible calls anyone to neutrality. Mm-hmm. I don't think there is such a thing as neutrality um, in, in the first place, at least in the absolute sense. Everybody has to think through some grid. So if someone turned it around on Christians and says, well, you have a bias, 
you have a worldview, so you're not exempt. I'd be like, you're absolutely correct. We're not. So let's just at least both admit that we're not neutral, get our worldviews on the table and start analyzing, mm. start comparing them, start seeing which worldview is more internally coherent and has the most explanatory value for the world around us. What, what I don't think is helpful is for someone to pretend they don't have a worldview and then say, well, you know, we're just following the facts. It's just the facts. You know, we're just scientists. We're in our white lab coats doing data. And you, you, you Christians are just religious people following dogma. And I want to change the terms of the debate. I want to suggest that that's really not what's happening. It's everybody's got what you might call religious commitments. And by religious, I don't mean formalized religious commitment, but what you might call philosophical commitments. Mm-hmm. They have a worldview that could be quasi-religious that they're committed to that, 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 that itself doesn't come from the, from the facts. Rather, it controls the interpretation of the facts. So yes, Christians are under the same uh, you know, uh, system there in the sense that we, we have worldviews too. But I'm, I'm calling for sort of this abandonment of the, of the fake neutrality mm-hmm. um, and everybody just admit they have a view and let's get it on the table and talk about it. Mm. And I think that's the better way to make headway uh, in conversations. Yeah, that's good. And you've identified, I think, two very helpful criteria to use when we are honest and say we all have a worldview, let's evaluate it. You said internal coherence and yes. explanatory value. So yeah. those are really nice issues to look at. Yeah, in the book, I don't, I don't explicitly lay out how you evaluate worldviews because, in fact, the whole book is an evaluation of our worldview and, and non-Christian worldviews. So I sort of demonstrate it. But, but one of my colleagues here uh, at RTS, James Anderson, has written a phenomenal little book, What's Your Worldview? Um, and he's also got a book, Why Believe Christianity, both of which analyze worldviews and how you, how you determine whether a worldview makes sense. You know, what, do you, what, what are you using as a standard? And, and internal coherence is part of that. Is it, does it fit together? Does it make sense within itself? Good. And, uh, and that's one of the things that I, I show the non-Christian worldview really struggles to do. Well, one other thing I liked about the book, especially, was how you weren't afraid to address controversial topics, unpopular topics, uh, topics that uh, usually I see people shying away from, and you were ready to uh, dive headlong into them in a, in a very ironic and thoughtful way. Uh, I'm wondering if you've received much pushback from things you've written in this book or maybe elsewhere on these topics. Yeah. Um, well, the book is so new that the, the, the pushback is probably forthcoming, right? Okay. So once, okay. the, once, the, once the reviews start flowing in, I'm sure I will have upset many a different folk out there who will let me know um, <laughs> that I've upset them. But, but I'm glad to hear that you picked up on one of my goals, which is an ironic patient and hopefully fair treatment of those hot topics in the book. And I was trying to demonstrate there to the reader, particularly the Christian college student, that you can disagree, you can make an argument without without ridiculing the other side, without mm-hmm. disrespecting people, without mocking alternative views, um, but you can show respect and care um, and, and go about it in a mature manner. Um, that doesn't mean we back off what we believe, but we also hold that belief with, with integrity um, and with maturity. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's a place to, 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 to make an argument for these things, but hopefully the way it's done in the book is, is demonstrating the way I think it should be done. Now, you know, at the end of the day, though, sometimes people are just offended by your view, regardless of how you say it, right? Sure. And so I'm expecting that, sure enough, someone out there will be think that my book is, I don't know, hateful or whatever it might be. Uh, but, but, but what I would hope they would do is at least engage the merits of the argument, right? Mm-hmm. And part of what I argue in the book especially when it comes to hot topics like sexuality, which is probably one of the things I imagine you're hinting at there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just want to say, well, what does the Christian worldview say, mm. right? But you don't have to agree with it. You don't have to, you don't have to like it. You don't even have to think it's right. But, 
but at least you have to get to the bottom line is what does Christianity teach? Let's at least be honest about that. And part of what I wanted the reader to get, if they're a Christian reader, is the Bible's clear on these things. Um, not not every little nuance, but on the macro level, sure. uh, we can have confidence in what it's saying, even if it's offensive, we need to stick to that. Mm-hmm. And so well done. So well done. I appreciate that. So the uh, the book goes through, as uh, as I mentioned, and you mentioned a number of uh, uh, either controversial topics that come up that Emma will face and Ryan, my son, will face and so many others, but uh, also uh, a number of issues that are raised against the faith uh, that aren't cultural per se, but they're more intellectual issues. And one important issue you raise, and I appreciate you addressing in, 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 in a very reflective way, is the problem of pain and suffering. Uh, regularly offered in universities as a reason either to believe God doesn't exist or God is not good. And again, a very thoughtful response to that. I was wondering though, you discount one response that some have found helpful, the free will defense, which I've actually written a little bit on myself. I'm wondering um, if that might be, and if you think it's fair to say to your point of paradigms earlier, an area where Christians have different theological persuasions or paradigms that shape how they approach that. So you know, if one comes from a Calvinist tradition, then that defense wouldn't be one a student might want to look to as a response. But if they come from a, a Arminian paradigm, that would be a solution that they might want to engage either in their own thinking or if in the conversations and papers they might be writing as. Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely the case. Um, and so, yeah, when you're, when you're offering your answer to the problem of evil, you know, any author is going to offer what they think is the best answer, right? Sure. Um, and so I, I made my case for what I thought was the best way to tackle it, but there's other Christians that have tackled it in different ways. And, you know, the free will defense is obviously very common. I mean, C.S. Lewis had a version of it, mm-hmm. um, although his is, you know, a little bit different than some, but, but nonetheless, you know, he would, he would be an example of coming from a more Arminian perspective and would, would probably embrace something along the lines of the free will defense as it's most commonly construed. Um, and, and I think that that's certainly a better option than some, let's just say that. And I mentioned in the book that, that some people want to solve the problem of evil by saying, well, well, God's not all powerful, right? right? So therefore he couldn't have stopped these things. Or or as you hinted, some people even say, well, maybe God's not all good. And well, okay, so now you've just taken the Christian God out of the equation entirely and right. you've now created a new God. Okay, well, that's a pretty bad solution. I think we could all agree because what you end up with is something other than the Christian God. And now you're, if, if that's where you end up, then you've not even really defended the faith. You just changed the faith and you made it something else. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to defend the faith as it is, obviously we have to have a, a, a something that preserves the Christian God. And I recognize that different theological systems are going to lead you down different pathways there. So, yeah, I presuppose a reformed system there, as you hint. Obviously, coming from Reformed Theological Seminary, that's probably not going to be a surprise to anybody. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'll let the reader, you know, analyze that. And if they find that my view is, was persuasive as a solution, then great. If they think, eh, you know, I like the other view better, then, then those, those views are out there. And I think there's multiple ways that Christians have tried to solve it. And so, yeah, you're right. It does depend on your macro system you start with. Well, and it illustrates a broader principle in your book that's really helpful to name, and that is the centrality of theology, that one ought to think well and think long and think hard about what they believe, uh, even as a student, uh, maybe very young in the faith, maybe somebody listening to this podcast just came to faith last week through a, a Christian ministry on their campus. Uh, and the point uh, that underlies so much of what you're saying is, we need to love God with our mind. We need to think about the things that uh, that we say we believe and understand why they're true. And and from that, draw other implications from that to other issues or or challenges that might arise. Yeah, well, I mean, another way to say it is apologetics is not just understanding 
other people's worldviews mm. and why they may be mistaken. And I think that's an unfortunate uh, move I see in a lot of apologetics is sort of the, well, let me just sort of critique this and critique that and so on. Mm. And there, there's a place for what you might call offensive apologetics, fair enough. But it doesn't actually work if your own worldview doesn't hold up. You know, it's one thing to say, you know, Islam is internally incoherent or, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses have this or that going on. Mm -hmm. But what about your worldview? Well, this is the point you make and that I make in the book, which is that, you know, part of defending the faith is knowing the faith. Right. And so it all starts with good theology is as paradoxical as it is. It's not about memorizing, you know, Greco-Roman background data, although that might be helpful from time to time. It's actually start with what you believe. Do you really know why you believe it and what it is? And could you understand why it's coherent within itself? So, yeah, I mean, I think one of the best ways Christians can survive Religion 101, to pick up on my own title, is to actually understand what Christianity really teaches. And, and honestly, most people show up at the university and they don't know. Right. I mean, they may be converted. Don't get me wrong. They may really love Jesus, but they just don't know their own system. And I think that really speaks a lot to the state of the church today. It does. Which is sort of a sidebar in my book. Mm-hmm. And I don't really go down that rabbit shot. I just mention it, which is, how do we get here? Right. You know, what, what, you know, someone needs to start thinking about that. And you can go back to Mark Knoll's scandal of the evangelical mind issue, which mm-hmm. he starts tackling some of that. But, it, but, you know, it's a problem, and we need to think about how to solve it. And I know it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but given your role now as a seminary president, do you see us, the evangelical community, making progress in that? Or are we still continuing to go down the wrong road in terms of preparing our young people and ourselves to think well about our faith? Yeah, no, I'm optimistic. You know, uh, I think there's been a good resurgence in the last 20 years in terms of a robust, serious, theologically reflective evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's there's progress that's been made in a number of fronts that way. And I think you've got a, a, a really high level of evangelical scholarship across many seminaries in the United States. And so I think we're on a good trajectory. I think the problem, though, is you can't evaluate the average sort of run-of-the-mill evangelical church by looking at the the bright lights only, you know, you, 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 and say, okay, well, they're all they all must be like the, the best thinkers out there mm-hmm. because the honest truth is the average church out there just misses some of that and isn't necessarily you know preparing their their next generation. So, so there's more work to be done. It's clearly, and I think there's a gap somewhere between what we're teaching our our leaders and seminaries and what's getting delivered to the average church. And, and and maybe some seminaries aren't doing the prep as well as others, fair enough. But but assuming you get good prep, where's where's the turnaround? Once I dump all this into my students, mm-hmm. are they therefore then turning around and passing it along adequately to their churches? And I don't know if that second step's happening in the way it ought to, be, ought to happen. And, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know how to fully assess it, but, but, but more needs to be done there. Well, of course, that's part of your calling to solve those type of problems and produce the type of pastors who will shepherd congregants in the right formation. Yeah. And I do, I do point out in the book that there's, there's certain strains within evangelicalism that, 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 that I think affect this. There's a pietistic strain in evangelicalism where, where the number one thing is always just, you know, live a, live a holy Christian life, which by the way is really important. I don't want to pretend it's not, right, right. but but if that's your, your only paradigm, then, then, then behavior is your number one topic of conversation. And I think there's a, there's a lot of that in American evangelicalism. Um, a, a large pietistic streak, which again, to be clear, has got its upsides. Mm-hmm. But if it's not combined with other things, it's going to have its serious downsides. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also what you might call a revivalist streak with evangelicalism, where the number one thing is, is, are you converted? Are you saved? Have you come forward? Have you, have you professed faith? And those are important things too. But uh, again, if that's your only card in your deck that you're playing, 
um, the only tool in your toolbox, you're going to have a very truncated congregation. I like the way you laid out those different paradigms and uh, tried to say it's a, a both and or all and not an either or. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying those things don't matter. I'm saying they're just not sufficient in and of themselves as the only way to think about the Christian faith. We will return to the show in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Guests on the College Faith Podcast often discuss how important professors are in the lives of students during these impressionable years. Christian professors are examples to both non-Christian and Christian students that a person can be educated and still follow Christ, and they can have a lifelong influence as mentors. Please consider helping equip Christian professors to make a difference on a campus near you and worldwide. To learn more, please visit www.global-scholars.org. Please also check out the other podcast Stan and Dr. J.P. Moreland do together, Thinking Christianly. Whereas this College Faith podcast focuses more on the practical questions of thriving during the college years, the Thinking Christianly podcast is all about the ideas that shape the university, students, our broader culture, and the world. Visit thinkingchristianly.org or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now back to College Faith. As I mentioned earlier, you discuss worldviews a lot, and specifically the theistic and Christian worldview, and and its counterpart that's often seen in the university, naturalism, the view that all that exists is the natural order. But uh, unless I miss something, and I very well may have, you don't say as much or even anything specifically about postmodernism, at least not directly. Maybe I certainly underlie some of the conversations you have about, say, the nature of truth and certainty. Yeah. Is there a reason you chose not to address it more explicitly in this book? Well, if you notice, I don't actually address any worldview in any comprehensive way in the book. I, I make one-off references to, to worldviews. Okay. And I do mention postmodernity without using the word quite a bit when I talk about the idea of, of, of truth being uh, obviously subjective and existential or relatively determined, mm-hmm. and that morals are that way too. Um, but what I, what I didn't want to do is you know spend a whole letter giving, well, here's the intellectual philosophical background for how we got into our modern postmodern uh, dynamics. Mm. And I think I would have had some, some people snoozing there. So I, I, what I did is tra- I tackled it through the issue. So here's the debate. And then I backed up into the solution, which obviously touches on those worldview issues, but I don't just start with a worldview and then explain why it's wrong. Uh, but I do, of course, mention uh, materialism, or you called it naturalism, which are overlapping a good bit, which is sort of a, mm-hmm. a version of atheism that says, the only thing in the world that, that exists are, is physical objects or mm-hmm. physical uh, uh, matter. Uh, and and I, I, I use that as a selective example of a worldview that I think falls apart. Obviously, you can't mention every worldview out there. There's right. so many of them. But you're right. The, the book is not a primer on worldviews in that sense. It's a, it's a primer on subjects or, or, or controversies that then uh, delve into worldview uh, issues sort of secondarily. Um, so, you know, I, I, there's other great books out there on worldviews. I'm sure that, the, that the, if someone wants to go down that, that, that trail, there's, there's some other great stuff out there they can read. Sure. And as I hear your thinking on that, that makes so much sense. And as I think about reading the book, made it so much more readable because you didn't start with theory and sort of, drill, you know. Yeah. And I've read a lot of apologetics books over the years that do that exact thing. And look, if you're, if you're, if you're teaching seminary students, maybe that's the system. If you're, if you're teaching seniors in high school, or freshman in college may not work very well for you. So, oh, that's great, and I think it makes the book so much more readable. Yeah, good. That helps. 
So uh, in chapter 15, you talk about different types of doubt. Yeah. I also found that very helpful. Uh, the distinctions you were making were, were, were so clear once you made them, but I don't think many of us make those. So would you summarize those distinctions for our listeners and suggest how to engage each type of doubt? Yeah, so this was a really important chapter for me um, because uh, I think that one of the things that's often left out of apologetics books is this idea that, that well, what do you do with doubt and mm. what, what, what category do you have for it, right? Is it, am mm. I a bad person? If I doubt, you know, am I, am I a second class Christian if I doubt? So step one in that chapter was just sort of alleviate the, 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 the stigma here and say, look, mm-hmm. everybody doubts at some level, some more than others. Um, and that this is a natural part of the Christian life and a natural part of life as a whole. Um, and it doesn't, it's not scandalous. I mean, you're, 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 you're a bad person mm-hmm. now. So that's, that's one problem I want to make sure people don't take away is that if you doubt you're somehow bad or a second class Christian. On the other hand, left unchecked, doubt can be a problem, right? So you don't, you're not going to suggest that doubt's something that we're welcoming or wanting and like, you know, as if we're swimming in the pool of doubt happily. Right. No, you want to push back against it. Uh, but it's a normal part of the struggle of the Christian life. And so one of the things I do is I say, well, look, let's talk about the kind of doubts that you might have uh, when you talk about uh, the Christian life. And I break it up in the and the different uh, categories. One of the obvious categories I, I talk about is there's doubts about the truth of Christianity, right? So what you might call an intellectual doubt, right? Mm-hmm. Is the Bible reliable? Um, you know, did 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 Luke's, Luke get the, the census wrong in, in Luke chapter two, when it talks about the census under Quirinius? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is there, a, is there, you know, two different creation accounts in Genesis uh, one and two? These sorts of questions mm-hmm. could be an intellectual question, and they may be legitimate. Someone may just never heard the answer. And if you can give them the answer, their doubt could go away almost instantaneously if it's a coherent answer. Sure. Uh, by the way, I make a, a, a point in the book there, which you may remember, is that not all, all intellectual doubts are actually intellectual doubts. In other words, sometimes they're a veil for something else, but leaving that aside. Uh, but then there's other kinds of doubts. Um, and these, these are what you might call experiential doubts or existential doubts. They're doubts about what's going on in your life. What, why, did my, why did my mom die of cancer, mm-hmm. right? What, why, why, how do I explain the fact that that there's so much you know darkness in the world, or why didn't God answer my prayer on that one occasion? Mm. Um, or sometimes another aspect of it is sometimes people doubt their own conversion. Mm. So here's an interesting form of doubt. I've talked to several Christians who don't even doubt Christianity. They absolutely are convinced Christianity is true. They doubt whether they're saved. Mm. So they live a life completely racked with doubt, but it's doubt about themselves and doubt about who they are, doubt about their identity. Okay, so once you start peeling back all the layers of doubt, you realize. Okay, there's a multi-dimensional version there, but but look, the big takeaway in all that, of course, someone can read the chapter and get the, the details. The big takeaway in all that is that doubt is a normal part of the Christian life, um, and you just got to face it and, and, and walk through it. And I talk about how to do that, of course, in that same chapter. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. That chapter alone is worth the price of the book. So I hope listeners, if for no other reason, pick it up and read it to get that chapter. So uh, here's a hard question, I think. Uh, as you reflect on the many issues you discussed, what did you find hardest to address? Which chapter did you struggle with the most? And maybe even decide, uh, you know, against your better judgment to publish and aren't sure you should have. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, if there are any. Yeah, well, I, you know, talk to me after all the reviews in and I get all pounding okay. and I have a different answer for you. <laughs> um, you know, th- 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 I mean, I think it's those who know my background may not 
be surprised to know that the chapters on on biblical reliability are are, are center of the fairway for me. Mm-hmm. So those were those were not difficult in the sense that uh, I wondered what to say. Right, I, mm-hmm. I, I knew where I was going, mm-hmm. um, and that was those were pretty comfortable chapters, but a very important chapter for for what we written. There, there's some chapters I just wish I could have done more on. Mm. I mean, part of the problem is is it, it's not so much that I'm I'm not pleased with what I did do. It's just that I left unsaid piles and piles of stuff. And, you know, the chapter on science, and I got one chapter on science. Are you kidding? That, that's just totally <laughs> inadequate. Um, you know, I wish I could have done more with transgender stuff mm. um, and sexual identity. I mean, you know, I deal with homosexuality in the book, but I don't deal with any of the, the, the more recent transgender stuff. And part, part of the challenge there is that, you know, that scene is moving so fast that whatever I wrote would be out of date within like six months, it seems. Right. So, you know, when I was writing the book, you know, I started this book several years ago. Um, you know, a lot of the transgender stuff was still sort of on the rise. And so, you know, there's nothing in there about that. And maybe version two, I could add it. So, yeah, there's some there's some gaps there. And I think, you know, part of what I had to just deal with at the end of the book was to say, you know, you can't say everything. You can't deal with every objection. There's no such thing as an exhaustive book. But I hope it's an adequate, helpful framing of the major issues so that anyone who reads it can be encouraged. And so, I, you know, I hope I got there. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna let the reader decide. But uh, yeah, there's a lot left unsaid. And by golly, if I could go back and had, you know, if I could have 45 chapters, and, and you know, I, I would probably say everything I wanted to say, but then no one would read it. See, there's the other problem. If you're asking what was a hard chapter to write, maybe that's a different way to say it. I would say the epilogue. Um, you know, the, the, there's the chapter on doubt, which is the 15th chapter but the epilogue was is an interesting topic which is you know the title is what do i do if it feels like christianity just isn't working for me and so now see this was a whole nother rabbit trail i couldn't go down but i thought it was helpful to address it in the epilogue i I sent the book out to a lot of folks to read obviously and give feedback before uh, i sent it off the press and i sent it to a lot of college ministers and one of the interesting things they told me is a lot of the objections they're getting from students aren't intellectual they're not even really engaged on some intellectual questions. They're just like, you know what? I, existentially, it just doesn't work for me. Christianity just doesn't, doesn't do it for me. I don't feel satisfied with what I'm getting here. Okay. Now, how do you deal with that? Well, I felt like I needed a chapter on it because I'd had a chapter on so many other things. And so the last chapter in the book is, what do you do if Christianity doesn't seem like it's scratching your itch and it's not really, you know, uh, seems intellectually or emotionally or existentially satisfying for you? So I start working through some of that. And, and, you know, someone who's done some great work on this is Tim Keller, who, no surprise, and I don't even mean his book, The Reason for God, because his book, The Reason for God, is more pure apologetics. He has a sort of a sequel to that. Um, and I, the title slips my mind right now. But the sequel to that basically uh, is, is designed to deal with a lot of these questions, which is the, the existential side. What do you do with Christianity? doesn't make it work for you. And he's done some great stuff on that. But uh, I had to condense it down into one chapter, and, you know, it was, it was hard to do that. And I love that you've in your book and now in our conversation tied head and heart together. And you, you cite Oz Guinness uh, uh, in the beginning of your postscript. He says the Christian faith is not true because it works. It works because it's true. Uh, but then you also go on in that chapter and talk about the importance of our affections, what we love for Christian growth. So can you say a little more about that connection between head and heart? Yeah, this is key. And, 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 and you know, Back to your prior question, I, I, I wish I could have done more on this because I think you know trying to, to stir the affections is is a key part of of of, of keeping the faith. Um, it's not enough just to say this is factually true. Therefore, I'm going to keep walking down this path. Although that's foundational, you you wouldn't walk down it if it was false, right? But what you'll find is a lot of people leave the path not because 
Um, it's untrue necessarily, but because they they get they get they fall in love with something else uh, more than Jesus. So there's this there's this affection question. And so if you're going to survive, back to the title, mm-hmm. your 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 experience in college, you've got to really guard your affections too and what you are pursuing. So so I do talk about that in the epilogue, and you know, and realizing that sometimes you don't feel like following Jesus, sometimes you don't feel like uh, keeping the faith, but there's a sense in which you, you, you realize there's ups and downs like any relationship and you push through those. Um, and then you take the necessary steps to stir your affection so that you're wanting the right thing. It's not just believing the right thing. You got to be wanting the right thing. So this is a whole world uh, of discussion. And I didn't want the book to become that because others have written on it and it would become too sermonic at that point. I wasn't trying to write sermons. Right. And I wasn't trying to, the book was not a rah, rah book, you know, stir up your emotions. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I didn't want it to color the whole book, but I, I do think that's a really important category. And so people need to realize is that you, you, your, your heart and mind can't be split. It's like, a, it's like splitting your, yourself. Um, you've got to keep them unified. And so you, you can't tend to just one either. Mm-hmm. You've got to tend to both of them. Now, I will say this. I think most people are quite, quite happy to work out of their heart most of the time. The problem is it just takes them in the wrong direction. Um, and fewer Christians cultivate the mind. So I, I, my diagnosis, I could be wrong, is that people need to, to, they need to keep their affections in view, of course, but they need to, they need to uh, cultivate the mind and their heart will follow what they, what they know is true. Well said. I appreciate that. You close the book by encouraging Emma with Jesus's declaration in John 10, 10, and this relates as well. Uh, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I, I suspect what you've just said relates to why you close the book on that note, but could you say a little bit more of that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I want to make sure that she and anyone reading the book follows Jesus, not merely out of intellectual obligation. Okay, so let's imagine that they're convinced when the book is done that that, that my arguments are right. Okay, and that Christianity is true, and that Jesus rose from the dead. Some people will find themselves following God out of sort of this sense that, well, everything else in life really seems a lot better, but I guess it's true, and so it's 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 what I should do, and so you end up following God out of this duty. Uh, and, and, and it's almost an intellectual duty. Like, because it's true, I feel obligated to do it and follow it. So therefore I'm going to kind of go through the motions and do it. Yeah. But all the while I'm sort of looking out of the corner of my eye at the things in the world and thinking that looks a lot better. That's that, that looks a lot more fulfilling. Mm. That looks a lot more, uh, wonderful. And, and I, and, and this is back to our earlier point, but if you live like that, that is not a sustainable life. You cannot, you cannot keep that, that, that dichotomy up. Something's going to give. Um, and so what I wanted to remind her of as I closed the book is that while these other things may look better and more fulfilling, they're actually not. And that if you can drink deeply of Christ, um, you'll find that he is much more enriching and fulfilling than any other life you could pursue. So that, that's the quote, right? It's the most abundant life you can live. I didn't say it was the easiest life you could live. Um, boy, if that were true, we, Christians would, would, would look, you know, our lives would look a lot different, but, but it is the most abundant life you can live. And that's, that's how I wanted to end the book. Uh, if you could only offer one piece of advice, what would it be? Well, I sort of start the book with one of those pieces of advice. And, you know, I, I don't know if it's the greatest piece of advice or if I only had one that this would be it. But I think it's an important piece of advice. And that is you don't have to have all the answers to be someone who believes. Hmm. Um, and this is more of a hang up than people realize. I, I'm amazed at how someone who doesn't have an answer to an objection, who gets stopped or finds out something they never heard before 
almost lets that one experience unravel everything. And I'm like, well, I just want to push back on that and say, well, what did you expect? You really thought at 19, you're going to show up at a university and have all the answers. I mean, what world are you living in? First of all, (laughs) secondly, um, not having an answer to somebody doesn't mean that your belief is false. There's lots of things you might have answers to. Um, it doesn't mean that my beliefs automatically false. And I use the example in the book of the moon landing deniers. If you're, if you ever run into a moon landing denier, who thinks it was all a big conspiracy. They actually have some pretty good arguments. And what I mean by that is if you weren't prepared for them, you probably wouldn't have an answer, but I don't know many people are going to give up their belief that we landed on the moon um, just because they were stomped. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, that, that I think is just a, a thing that people need to be told and, and tied into that is, is, is a related point, which is not having an answer doesn't mean there's not an answer. You may not have the answer. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean there's not an answer. Go find the answer. Mm-hmm. You know, part of, part of what I hope the book does is send students on an intellectual quest. Don't be satisfied with what your professor is telling you. You only got half the story and at best half the story. There's a whole other half out there. And if you don't have an answer, go find it. There are answers and there's people who've done the work mm-hmm. from the beginning. So that would be my big piece of advice. I think if students take that, then they're going to they're gonna do a lot better because they're going to go searching and find the truth rather than just accepting what the professors say. Yeah. And that's again, that Proverbs eighteen seventeen idea that, you know, one side of a story always sounds good until the other side uh, is, is articulated and brings some balance. So that's a good word. So uh, I mentioned a little bit of this earlier, ask a little bit about this. I want to circle back in the preface, you note that you don't have time to explore all the questions that can be raised. Are there some issues you, you really wanted to address that uh, just would have made the book way too long, broad topics? And if so, what are some good resources that you might point to to engage those questions you didn't get to? Yeah, well, you mentioned one, which is this idea of, of, of worldviews and what are they? What are the options? I mentioned my friend James Anderson book, James Anderson's book called What's Your Worldview, which is a fantastic little tutorial on that. It's really short and easily read. So it's a, it's a book that I think also high school and college students could, could benefit from. Um, on the biblical authority front, Wow. I mean, golly, I could have gone through apparent Bible contradictions. You know, I could have a chapter on what seems to be biblical errors or mistakes. You know, I could talk about the reliability of the Old Testament. So I only really talked about the Gospels as one sample. Um, you know, I never really talked about the development of the canon in any sort of sustained way. Uh, I would love to have dealt with that. And certainly uh, I've written on that extensively if someone wants more on that. You know, I mentioned transgenderism. Never talked about that. Um, I wish I could have done more there. Um, you know, so there, there's a lot of these little little pockets of areas I think need more attention, and, and any apologetics books would would address them at more length than this, um, and, and and certainly probably at a deeper level. Yeah, I will mention that I cover a lot of these sorts of things on my website, mm. um, and you know, even though this is my first lay level book, I've been writing for lay people for 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 years on my website. Great, and trying to take a lot of my academic work and, and distilling it down for. For folks, and so that's uh, my website's called Cannon Fodder. That's Cannon with an, with one N in the middle, which is why it's actually a pun. So if someone isn't getting the pun, well, then they may not understand what uh, the difference is between Canon Biblical Canon versus you know Boom Canon. Right. Um, but uh, and it's just MichaelJKruger.com. So the, the listeners may may benefit from a lot. I have a ton of material in there, both my own articles, I link to my publications, I have a bunch of videos and different tutorials that might that that might people find helpful. So oh, wonderful. So I'll link to all that in the show notes. Perfect. Well, Mike, as we draw to a close, is there anything else you'd want to be sure we touch on? 
No, we've we've covered we've covered the gamut. I will say this is that, and we, we sort of mentioned this at the beginning, but I think it's worth mentioning now. Is that I, I didn't write this book just for college students. Um, mm. I'm, I'm expecting, of course, with the title, that the majority of the of the readers will be college students, and I, and I and I hope it gets you know obviously widely used by college students. But I wrote this for anybody with questions, and so I hope I hope no one's deterred by the framing of the book as if, well, if I'm not 19 or 20, then this doesn't apply to me. No, any, any believer who has questions will hopefully benefit from this. And in particular, parents, here's an idea. Read it with your, with your college-age child. You know, you read it at home, they read it, you discuss it. I mean, there's an idea. Mm-hmm. I think the parents ought to read the book too. That's a great idea. And so, uh, you know, don't, don't, I, hope, I hope the readers don't categorize this all. Part, part of the problem of writing a niche book, of course, is that you know, niches are good and niches are bad. You know, niches can can limit things. And and I'm happy with this niche because I have a heart for college students. But at the same time, I hope the, the listeners know that, hey, this is just, a, this is a book for, for anyone. That's uh, a great idea. I hope the listeners will do that with their children. So uh, last question that's a little personal, if you, uh, if you don't mind, uh, we'd love to know how Emma has found this book. If she's giving you any feedback. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, she loves it. She's, she's, she's uh, wrapping up her sophomore year as we speak here at UNC. Um, I had hoped, you know, in a, in a perfect world to have had this ready for her when she graduated, but you know, life often doesn't work the way you plan it out. And I never, I just couldn't get to it in time, but my, I am actually pleased I'm getting it in her hands before she graduates. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, in that sense, um, you know, maybe I'm not too late, but she's had a great experience at UNC. I'll, I'll add to that. She's she's thrived spiritually, great, um, and done well. Uh, you know, obviously without this book because she just got it, but she's been thrilled to get it and she's loved it. And I, 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 it was released at the the Gospel Coalition conference back in April. It was like the first big public release of the book. Hmm. And the, thankfully, I was there speaking, and, and she was there Aww. attending. And we got a wonderful little picture in the book in the book area with the, with with it, and she holding it. So that was a special moment. So yeah, she she she's loved it. Oh, that's great. So good to hear. It's got to be such a joy for you as a dad. Yeah, that's it's personal. And, and you know, I, I, it's, it's one of the few areas where I feel like I'm combining my academic work uh, with a more personal tone, which, right. you know, the goal there was to make it more accessible. And uh, hopefully, hopefully that's, that's, that's worked. Absolutely did. Well, Mike, this, is a, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for writing the book for Emma and all the other students like her who will take Religion 101 and who we want to help to survive it, who, who actually will come out on the other end more sure of their faith and more in love with, with, uh, with God. So I appreciate your work. And, and, and thanks for the, the courage you, you show to tackle, tackle so many of the tough issues that students will face in college beyond just the academic. Your thoughtful approach, clear writing, compassionate engagement is just a model, I think, for how we all should be able to uh, engage these things in, a, in the spirit of Christ. So thanks for your model and your service to the kingdom. Thank you. Thanks, Stan. Thanks for having me on. And I appreciate those kind words. And it was a fun conversation. I enjoyed it. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith and pass this show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, 
to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. And if you haven't done so already, I would greatly appreciate your review of this show at Apple Podcast or Stitcher. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.